Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dewar. And this is Cocaine, Murder and Inquests, a night on the town in Victorian Waterford. Waterford is a city with an exhaustive history. Founded 1100 years ago, every street, alley and lane has its own intriguing story. So when I was asked to do a live podcast in Catty Barry's, a pub in the heart of Waterford, I had my pick of great history. Literally outside the door of this very pub, one of Waterford's most famous sons, Thomas Francis Marr, raised the Irish tricolour for the first time in 1848. If you're wondering, yes, that is the same Thomas Francis Marr who commanded the Irish Brigade in the American Civil War and served as a Brigadier General in the Union Army. His life alone would make a great show. Then across the road from Catty Barry's is Reginald's Tower, one of the oldest buildings in the city. Previous residents of that tower include the notorious King John of Robin Hood fame. In the end, however, I decided on a very different approach for this live show. Rather than focus on the famous people and chapters in Waterford's history, I decided to poke around in the darker corners of the past and see what the less famous residents of Victorian Waterford got up to. This live recording from Catty Barry's proved to be a strange journey through macabre inquests that took place in that very pub, true to dentists peddling cocaine at the turn of the 20th century. Now by the second half of the show, we'll have reached the city workhouse where I'll recount a pretty bizarre murder involving a veteran of the famine. Before starting this episode, make sure you've subscribed to the show in whatever app you're listening to because I've some great content on the way. Next week is the story of trad music. I have a really special guest on that show and it's only been recorded on Saturday so that might not be out until next Tuesday. The following week is going to be something completely different. We'll be returning to the Second World War 
and I will be living on a World War II ration diet for a few days to explore what life might have been like during the Second World War in Ireland. This involves things like tomato soup with no tomatoes in it. It's going to be a fascinating show. Finally, I want to thank each and every supporter of the podcast. We're all feeling the pinch these days with the rising cost of living and it means an awful lot to me that you continue to support the podcast. I'm working on an exclusive special event for supporters over the summer. I'll be posting details about this on Acast Plus and Patreon shortly. If you're a listener on Acast Plus or Patreon, don't forget to check out the show notes. I've listed this week's special supporters in the notes below. If your name is not there this week, it will be soon. Thanks so much, folks. I really couldn't make the show without you. When I was asked to talk tonight, I was kind of thinking about what I would do. And I came down and I was chatting to Paul and, you know, we're throwing a few ideas out there. And obviously, I'm actually, I should preface all this to say I'm not a, a Waterford native. I'm from Kilkenny. Uh, but I've moved to Waterford recently, so <laughs> so uh, I suppose part of this would have been kind of like I don't I don't want to come down and tell people about their history, a history that I'm not even too familiar with. But uh, obviously, there's so much here. There's like Reginald's Tower across the road, and I've done stuff about the Normans, and I was thinking about that. And then obviously, Thomas Francis Marr raised a tricolor for the first time, literally outside the door. And then it was, uh, Paul actually said it to me that it was, today is actually the anniversary of the Craig Collins Pact, and it was like, well, you'd do that, and then you could end up with points being thrown across the uh, the bar. So I kind of went for something different, and I thought maybe kind of looking at the exact opposite might be interesting for people. So rather than the high politics, to go down into the street and see what was going on in Waterford, kind of with maybe between 150 and 100 years ago, looking at what people were doing now don't worry i'm going to stop at about 1911 so i'm not going to libel anyone present or probably not even your grandparents but uh i thought it might be interesting to kind of poke around the streets see what was going on and what we might do is we'll start on Mal lane here hopefully we can come inside the pub see what was going on then we'll work it out then in the second half uh, i have a bit of a controversial story for a kilkenny man coming down to a pub in waterford with a temporary connection because it's a murder in Tipperary that was organised in Waterford. But anyway, we'll get to that in the second half and we might even talk a bit about uh, cows taking opium and things like that in the 19th century. But oh, oh, there's a, there's a, a, a loss to, uh, to get through. So I suppose a good place to start is in a pub. And I was curious about maybe what was here, or at least on Mal Lane. And I was wondering, you know, to find pubs from back in the day here. And I started looking around and I saw kind of an odd time to, to come across it but uh, the first pub that I could find in this area was oddly enough during the famine this was a bit of a happening spot and in 1849 this lad called Thomas O'Connor Thomas Connors rather tried to open up a pub here in Mal Lane to get a uh, he appealed to the council to get a license and they rejected it because there was already too many pubs down here now I suppose moving on then I was curious about Cathy Barry's here and when we could find a pub that was actually on this spot and the first place I could find was a place called the Queen's Arms Hotel that's at number two Mal Lane uh, which I believe is uh, Cathy Barry's and a man called John Tierney was the proprietor not very much was said about it it said it was opposite the town hall a few paces from where the steam packets and, and the courthouse and would be found 
uh, replete with every comfort. They sell scotch and English ale. Ale's grand, you know, uh, not much to it. But pubs in the 19th century were a bit different in terms of what you might expect to find in them. Uh, I suppose today you might even come and hear a history podcast or a history talk, but you know, you might, I think most of us go to pubs mainly maybe from music and things like that. But in the 19th century, something that used to take place uh, in pubs a lot were actually um, inquests into dead bodies. And uh, there was that several, sort of like while you were getting relaxed there in the room, just bear in mind there was actually several inquests, inquests rather, held here. Now an inquest in the 19th century was a very different type of affair than it would be today. Today, you know, there's a coroner's court. It happens in a very kind of formal procedure. In the 19th century, that had to happen really quickly after a body was found. Obviously, uh, an inquest takes place when a murder can't be explained, essentially. So they have to have happen as quickly as possible because at an inquest, you have to have the body present. So what would happen in a pub like this one that we're sitting in now, a body would be brought in. They'd then convene the coroner's court by getting in a jury that could be up to 24 people the reason they get a really high number is because they have to have 12 for a verdict. So they basically cram the jury. So you'd have 24 people in the pub on top of that. Then, you know, if you heard of a suspicious, you know, maybe someone knifed around the corner, you might want to come in, find out what was going on too. So loads of onlookers were coming in. The body is put up the top. The coroner then brings in all the 24 people. They have a look. You get in a few doctors, maybe they'd explain what happened. Um, and you get this pretty macabre scene, and just a couple of them. For example, in 1876, I suppose it's a sad case, uh, where you have, sorry, it's, uh, we have, shortly before 7 o'clock on Saturday night, a woman called Catherine Barrett, right, wife of William Barrett, mate of the schooner Vigilant, was drowned in the river a little above Market House, it appears that the deceased went down to see her husband, whom she was in the habit of visiting when his vessel was in port, and it's supposed she mistook his vessel and was su- subsequently drowned. The body was found on Sunday evening, about 20 yards from where it's supposed the deceased fell into the river. On Monday, E.N. Power Square Coroner held an inquest into the body at the Queen's Arms Hotel, J. Tierney Proprietor. So that would have happened in here. Um, there's several others like that of people who drowned in the river would have been brought up here. They're pretty for, uh, straightforward in that case. Several people come forward, testify that they saw her coming down to the docks and you know, maybe she had a few scoops on board or whatever and she slips into the river. A more, uh, I suppose, tragic case would be uh, the murder of a child, actually, and the inquest that took place here in 1877. And this again is from a Waterford newspaper. It says, an inquest was held last evening at the Queen's Arms Hotel, Waterford, on the body of an infant found late on Wednesday evening in a field a short distance from the city. It appeared from the evidence that the, large, that, that the body was partially buried with a large stone. Dr. Delandre, who made the post-mortem examination of the body, stated that it was the body of a child upwards of a month old. They go into detail. I'm not going to ruin your uh, evening drinks with the detail of it. But a woman named Cain was arrested in, in that instance. Um, so I suppose, yeah, it's worth bearing in mind if you were uh, after a few pints on a Friday evening, you're coming for a hair of dog on a Saturday, you could find a pretty ropey scene in front of you in the pub. But uh, that just was, I suppose, Cathy Barry's. And then to get a more of a, I suppose, intimate sense of places like this, uh, the census is a great 
place to look and obviously we have our census coming up I think it's in the next couple of nights but in 1901 the census took place what would be tomorrow night 121 years ago and actually the pub is gone by that stage there's no pub here a guy called William uh, Bambrick uh, is living there and then with his wife and daughter are actually from Pilkenny they're living here I'll be honest which is not much of interest with them he was a former RIC constable not a whole lot going on there then I looked at the 1911 census and you have a man called Lawrence Kelly. And again, to be honest, there wasn't very much of interest. And I, by this stage in the research, I was beginning to get worried that I wouldn't have. I'd gone down a, a, a bit of a rabbit hole. So I looked around for pubs, and there was a pub here, uh, not on this site, but at number six up the way. And that was owned by a man called Michael Kerwin. He lived here with his wife, Ellen, in 1901. They were 43. Ten years later, in 1911, they're still living here. Michael was 53, but Ellen had actually aged to 55 in those 10 years, so she'd put on 12 years in, in the space of 10. Now, this is actually a common enough thing in Ireland between the 1901 and 1911 census because the Old Age Pension Act had come in in 1908 and people were watching when they'd reached 70 and qualified for the pension. So you get, that's a, she's been, I suppose, just bending the truth, but you get people who put on 12, 14, 15 years where they're looking at a retirement as soon as possible but uh, again these people to be honest aren't the most interesting and I was beginning to think uh, the best we were going to get out of Mal Lane was an inquest but then I actually looked at the house next door number one and this actually became more of an interesting place with some characters living in it so in 1901 in house number one there was a man called Thomas O'Mahony living there with his family he would just been renting he was an agricultural uh, labourer. But there was a, two uh, people living in the house who would have been contributing to the rent. And one was a Dubliner called Thomas Rooney. And the second guy was a man called Carl Bernardo. And Carl Bernardo was actually from Russia. Uh, he was a 24-year-old who was married and living there. But the interesting thing about these two guys is that they were circus performers. Not exactly what you might think to find in Waterford in 19... Uh, 01 but I wanted I was curious then what was this circus like what were these lads doing in the circus so I went off and did a bit of searching and I found that a big thing in Waterford between about 1880 and the early years of the 20th century was this thing called Lloyd's Mexican Circus it used to tour around Ireland and it came here quite a lot and the earliest one I could find was an ad from 1899 give you a sense of what these lads were doing and actually, it's one of the first cinemas you'd get in Waterford at the time would be at this circus. So the circus would open, and there was a cinematographer, is what they call him. He's a guy called Professor Bosco. Now, I'd say Professor Bosco's qualifications were self-appointed in this instance. But actually, you look at the news, and I suppose depressingly enough, it's not that different. What they offer patrons of the circus is the uh, Spanish... You can look at the uh, footage of the Spanish-American War, which was ongoing at the time, to show you this American warship called the Maine before it was blown up. They've got a bit of a footage afterwards. They have, they also note 350 people were lost in that. So like I suppose it's heightening the, the sensationalism. And then the circus itself would be on. And maybe this is what our friend Carl there who was living next door in 1901 would have been involved in. Uh, they had what they called, uh, this one is good, the most surprising, astonishing and wonderful man in the world, Raymond the only one-legged dancer on earth. Uh, so that's what you could get to see. 
these circuses were all the one that actually Carl Bernardo was uh, was performing in uh, happened on the fourth of April, nineteen oh one, and they all used to take place opposite what was the Tremor Railway Station up at a place on Manor Street. Um, it was a big open field up there uh, where they put up the uh, the um, where they put up the tent. Now, just what's an interesting thing is in this, he was gone. Your man comes, stays, and in nineteen eleven, obviously, Carl Bernardo is wherever. I don't know. I'd say he's, he's probably actually a uh, pseudonym because we don't know very much about him. He, I couldn't find any mention of him anywhere in the world after he appeared in Watford. So, but in nineteen eleven. There was a family had moved in, the Powell family, and the head of the family is a man called Elias. And what was interesting about him is that he was a motor mechanic. And I was kind of taken aback, I suppose, to think a car is not exactly something in early 20th century Ireland. Now, they were coming in, but in fact, engines, what this guy is probably working on, is farm equipment that had existed for 50 years. But it did make me curious about, uh, you know, the first car in Waterford and could we kind of find out about that. But this is a... I suppose where you have cars, you have accidents, and where you have accidents, you've got compo culture. And it doesn't take very long before that gets going. In 1910, in September 30th, in a local paper, there's a story about a Waterford woman who was knocked down on the quay, but it seems that she hadn't really, she wasn't very familiar with cars. She sees this car coming from a distance. The car tries to avoid her. She freaks out and ends up jumping in front of the car. And the whole thing goes to court. Incidentally, she actually loses the case in the end because... She's uh, uh, proven to uh, accept it at, actually at the scene. She took a wad of cash and was actually coming back for more. But anyway, what was interesting though in this is actually the speed of cars at the time. So, you know, as part of the court case, the defendant who was driving the car has to get up, explain what he was doing for the evening. And uh, his little name was Samuel Bell. And you know, he says what he's done and he's actually been to Enniscorthy and they ask him, well, you know, when did you leave Enniscorthy? And he says he le- left at Enniscorthy and anyone want to hazard a guess from Enniscorthy to Waterford in 1910, how long did it take him? Six hours. Uh, they were a bit faster than that, but it took him three hours all the same in a car um, to, to do 36 miles. Now, cars at the time were uh, pretty, uh, yeah, I'd say you'd be lucky to get the whole journey without the car breaking down. And that kind of made me think about, you know, around this time, the turn of the, the, the century, um, things like when was the first telephone maybe in Waterford? And this is actually way earlier than I... I, I wouldn't know about telephones, to be honest with you. And uh, the first telephone was installed, I think, in Waterford in June 1898. I'll just read it out to you because it's kind of a, a funny thing. So it says, Telephone service to Waterford. The Waterford correspondent of the Freeman's Journal says, Successfully speaking, has just been, uh, successfully speaking, has just been established on the telephone trunk service between Dublin, Wexford, Waterford, uh, Belfast and Cork. The Dublin, Wicklow and Wexford Railway lent the post office a section to complete the communication between Wexford and Dublin, which has not yet been quite finished by the government workmen. Um, I'd they move on to the, the substance, substance of the story and they say the post office exchange in Waterford is being fitted with the most up-to-date apparatus and one of the features of the silent box, that's where you'd make the call, at the post office counter um, is that the public will be able to sit on a chair electrically, electrically connected so that when the subscriber sits down they're automatically connected 
to a trunk wire and from there they can speak to a friend in Cork, Dublin, Belfast, Liverpool and London and Paris as the case may be. Unless the rates for speaking prove prohibited, there ought to be a great future for the telephone in Waterford. And that's in June 1898. You'd wonder what those people would make of a, of a smartphone, what is it, 122 years later. And then the last kind of first that I kind of came across doing this was street lighting. And, you know, we, the street lighting is definitely something that we take for granted today. Maybe a kind of a, a time that would make you think about it is if you read accounts from the Second World War where like road deaths, say particularly in London, go through the roof because of blackouts and people are actually trying to move back to a world where there's no uh, street lighting. And in a lot of cases, you, you, if you read accounts, say, say particularly accounts from rural Ireland in the 19th century and kind of, you know, travellers from particularly internationally, you know, there is reference to kind of life just kind of really concentrating down after dark because you just can't be out and about on a dark evening. But obviously the introduction of streetlights began to change all that. And again, anyone want to hazard a guess when Waterford got its first streetlights? 1980, not far off. In September 1818, actually it was before Paris, the Mall and the Quay in Waterford, and this is again a good one. It's the Quay and the Mall in Waterford have uh, had, I can't even read the word so long ago, had, anyway, had lighted with gas during the last four nights. Sorry, have been lighted with gas for the last four nights. The plan has been looked into with great anxiety, so people, I guess, were a bit worried about it. And its execution has been gratified with utmost expectation, which were indulged. And while its continuation and extension through all the streets of the city are hoped, and its admission into shops promised, to be attended with the most uh, beneficial consequences. The key in the mall may be regarded as exhibiting at night an entirely new scene, being so finely illuminated that inhabitants can recognise each other almost as easily as noonday. The works were constructed by Messrs Graham of this city, and it's the boast of Waterford to have so early adopted this measure, and it's her peculiar boast to have had it so ably and fully accommodated by those who are numbered among the fellow citizens. Like that's in September 1818. It's worth bearing in mind that the keys in Dublin weren't actually, uh, didn't get gas lighting until the 1840s, so it was a real innovation, and it must have been, must have been a pretty uh, uh, incredible thing to see. Um, interestingly, the way they used to do streetlights at the time, there wasn't a gas network, like they didn't have, I mean, Vladimir Putin wasn't deciding whether we got our gas or not in 1818. They actually used to burn, they'd set up a factory where they'd burn coal, or sometimes wood and use the gas off that then would be piped through the city and used for that. Um, I have a couple of others. We'll break soon enough, I think. I oh, know we've got another five minutes. Um, we've had so many dis- discussions uh, recently in Ireland about choice and this was abortion and things like that came to the fore for the first time, or people thought that that discussion was happening in public for the first time. But in 1901, I came across a very interesting advert in a newspaper, and it's entitled Ladies' Ailments, and it says, Speedy relief will be derived by taking um, at once Miss St. Clair's famous specific, known for 26 years as the uh, most effective medicine of its kind, cures all irregularities and promotes and maintains regular health, testimonials, dailies, avoid limitations, post is free, gives the price, gives the address, and then at the very end it says, NB, 
not to be taken for illegal purposes. And that's probably the purpose of the ad. What it is is actually a pill that will work or induce an abortion. And I was, there's a woman who makes a podcast called uh, Censored, which is about kind of banned uh, publications in Ireland. And she was saying, actually, these ads are one of the reasons British tabloids were banned in Ireland, because you get these ads that, you know, it's a, at the end, it's saying, do not, it's kind of like, do not press the red button. It's telling the person at the end, this is to be taken for what are illegal purposes. One last thing I will finish on before we take a break, perhaps, is um, a dentist that used to work at number three on the mall. And this is a, this one is a, more humorous I think and maybe a, a good place to uh, break uh, sorry the white turn this one is small and it says the inhabitants of Waterford deeming the superiority of the Amer- of American dentistry above all systems to be the best the Irish sorry the uh, this guy is offering his services but one of the things that they're offering is fillings with enamel gold amalgam from two shillings and sixpence, extractions from one shilling and sixpence, painless extraction with gas or cocaine. And that's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, the, uh, at that point, I think I might just uh, pause for a break. Everyone can go to the bar. <laughs> and uh, we'll come back and I've got... Uh, we're going to get down into the dirty and the ugly, I think, afterwards with that story of a murder in Tipperary organised from Waterford. But uh, yeah, we'll come back then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. going to talk about now is I suppose it's a bit changing gears and this is just one story but this is actually something that um, really interests me Uh, I actually found this story a long time before I ever came to Waterford a long time I'm only here two months so it's a but uh, it's an interesting story and I wouldn't have really known any of the place where it took place but I suppose to start we need to kind of reorientate ourselves up at a place called the Waterford Arms Hotel and the Waterford Arms Hotel is the credit union today. I think you can actually see there's a plaque on the side of the credit union that actually has Waterford Arms. And it's, that's where the hotel was um, on the corner of Colbeck Street and Parnell Street is right there. I think it was there to the 1980s. But the hotel had opened, or the building was anyway, the hotel had opened in 1835. And the 
story really only begins after the famine. Um, and I suppose Waterford, like everywhere else, was in a bleak state of affairs at that point. The, um, the country had been devastated and the city itself, just like everywhere else in the country, was um, really, I suppose, reeling. The workhouse would have still been massively overcrowded. Place like Waterford had seen, in a way, maybe hadn't suffered the worst, but had seen the worst in terms of people coming through here, trying to emigrate, get out of the country. But the person that this story focuses around is a man called Richard Burke. He wasn't actually from Waterford, but by 1850 he had moved here. He had been born in care in Tipperary. I'll come back to that. But give you a sense of the man, because he's at the centre of the, the, the story. And we know a good bit about him. He had uh, blue eyes, black hair. He was five foot two, which um, I suppose would be quite small uh, for a man today, but at the time would have been slightly under average, but you know, he, he wouldn't, I suppose, have been, wouldn't have been far off the average either. And he would have been a, a sight around Waterford. He actually lived, sorry, the reason I bring up the Waterford Arms Hotel is that he would have lived here as, uh, or lived there. He didn't have a house in Waterford. He lived in Waterford and he would have been a regular sight around the city every morning he'd get up from work and he'd actually go up to the workhouse now for those who don't know the workhouse is uh where st patrick sorry st patrick st patrick's hospital on the upper grange road is today so he would have walked up there every morning to his job and to get a sense of this guy um richard burke and you know it's a story that revolves around his personality and his experiences in life i suppose to explain him you could use the term a veteran of the famine but he wasn't a veteran in the way we might expect. I think often when we think of the famine, we think maybe of a starving uh, tenant farmer in the west of Ireland and, you know, they die in a workhouse or they emigrate. But every part of the country was affected by the famine. And while 90% of the country uh, suffered and came out of it worse off, that wasn't the case for everyone. Richard Burke is a bit like that. So we'll start his story in 1842 and he had been born into a comfortable family in uh, care in Tipperary and he got a job in 1842. He's only, I should say, he's only 20 at this stage and got a job in Clahine Workhouse uh, as a teacher there uh, earning £15 a year. Now, getting a job in a workhouse in 1842, workhouses had just opened. This is kind of like a guy who got a job in public health in January 2020, thinking it was going to be an easy ride, and that's why he got into that end of public health. First three years working in Clahine Workhouse, it's easy enough going. Workhouses weren't full before the famine. They often actually had quite low numbers with a stigma for anyone going into them. So Burke would have taught the children. Uh, he's a very, very uh, uh, un... Uh, what's the word? Uh, he didn't stand out in records at all. In 1845, to his benefit, actually, the clerk of Clocking Workhouse got caught having an affair with a teacher in the workhouse, or with the, the, a, a woman who worked in the, uh, uh, as a nurse in the workhouse, and he lost his job for this. And this kind of opens up an advancement for Richard Burke. And by 1845, on the eve of the famine, he's become the clerk of the workhouse. And a clerk in the workhouse is actually one of the few paid positions. What he does is he goes to the uh, board of guardians are the ones who kind of make the decisions on a weekly basis. He goes to their meetings, takes a minute, and then kind of implements any decisions. That's all grand. 
by 1845 before the family's earning 60 pounds a year not too bad at the time um, and then the famine hits and that job suddenly becomes one of the worst jobs in the country you're now starting to decide essentially who lives and who dies uh, you're dealing with a huge uh, a tsunami of poverty large numbers of people absolutely desperate so by about 1846 Crahine workhouse is uh getting the conditions inside it like every workhouse in the country are getting worse and worse and worse but richard burke is you know you kind of hear the you might hear guys who like go to war and find themselves richard burke kind of finds himself in the famine he becomes a great administrator and actually while the country is on the verge of collapse things are going pretty good for him he's just got a promotion in 1845 he's doing well in his job by 1847, he marries a local woman, uh, Joanna marries, who, who would become Joanna Burke in early January 1847. This is like when marriages in Ireland have hit the floor, for example, in Cahine. When they get married, there's only 14 marriages in January that had fallen from nearly 80 uh, before the famine. So it gives you a sense, while everyone else's life is going down, his life is on the up. Um, in 1848, he's getting pretty good at working in a workhouse and he actually gets moved to Ennis Diamond to take up this position of vice guardian. That's where things are in a real crisis. They strip away all the democracy and they just give all the power in the workhouse to a guy called a vice guardian. And that's what Richard Burke becomes. He moves into like what is in Ennis Diamond, you could say is the epicenter of the famine. He arrives there not long before cholera breaks out. By November 1848, there's 30 deaths a week. Three months later in January 49, He's dealing with 89 deaths a week. But again, the guy's a weirdo, I think, in many ways, because he excels in this. He proves himself a really capable administrator. And there's a, a above all the workhouses, there's um these guy called these guys referred to as the poor law commissioners, and they're essentially the ones who oversee all this. And they identify Burke as a uh, guy with, I suppose, uh, a future in this business, a pretty bleak business. But in 1850, he gets uh, moved to Waterford and he takes up the position as a clerk. And by this stage, workhouses, which had gone from this kind of peripheral thing at the edge of the society, are now becoming the key place where Ireland is essentially trying to survive. It's the one place that the poor could go to get food. They're very dangerous because you could catch disease. And actually, Richard Burke contracts typhoid uh, in a workhouse and just manages to survive. But by the time he moves to Waterford in 1850, He's earning 250 pounds a year so in the space of just less than 10 years his wages have increased 16 fold so there's a guy who has done well out of the famine it doesn't necessarily reflect that badly on him like for all we think about workhouses they did it's where the largest number of people died during the famine but it's also where the largest number of people went for aid so it's a bit of a complex story but anyway he's uh doing the doing well now at this point his personal life, though, is in a bit of an odd position. His wife, Joanna, had never left Clahine. She had li lived there uh, when he had moved to Enna Simon. She had lived in a rented house there while Richard had first moved to Enna Simon. You might say, look, you don't want to bring his wife into somewhere like Enna Simon at the height of the famine. It's a dangerous place. He had, he had contracted typhoid, uh, so she remained in Clahine. But then he moves to Waterford, and she still remains in Clahine. And he shacks up in the, uh, the Waterford Arms Hotel and she remains there. And they have this kind of strange relationship where he sees her, you know, you can see it's maybe a month, every two months, every three months. And they don't have children, which at the time would have been seen as 
it would have been a question on their marriage um, because they had now been married by the early 1850s, nearly five years, there's no children. She's living with her niece in a house in Clahine. And you can see from their income, he's not paying any of his income. He's earning a lot of money, but she's kind of surviving on this house that she owns and she's renting out rooms and that's what she lives on to survive. That's all, I suppose, grand. And his career, he's doing very well, as I say. He's earning £250 a year until about 1861, or until 1861, when Richard Burke becomes the focus of a huge scandal here in Waterford. And that starts when a, um, the chaplain of the workhouse, a man called Reverend McKeown, accuses Richard Burke of really serious charges, and they certainly would be today. Um, they would be serious at the, in the 1860s for a different reason, but he's accused of rape, abuse, and then having an illegal relationship um, with a woman called Joanna, uh, or sorry, with a woman, a certain Miss Ryan. She's a teacher in the workhouse. Now that's ex- um, ex- um, absolutely forbidden by the poor law commissioners that you'd have this type of relationship. Workhouses have this big moral component to them. Certainly a married man having a relationship with women working in the workhouse was not um, tolerated. Now the three women who make the most serious Allegations against him of um, sexual abuse are women called Anne Cullen, Joanna Kenny, and Nancy Ryan. And given the time it was, these three women's testimonies are just actually completely disregarded. It's said that they're um, women of a... Uh, sorry, I have the term here. It's uh, I can't find the exact words, but it's basically because they're of low character. And that could refer to lots of things. It might refer to the fact that they're just poor it could also refer to the fact that maybe at one time or another the women had worked um, as in sex work either one of these things but the women sorry it's, it's say they're of poor character um, so their claims are disregarded but we do know Joanna Kenny one of those three women said that he had uh, seduced her and had been what she said was the first cause of my ruin and degradation Another woman claimed he had given her money. There's all these rumours basically swirling around Richard Burke at this time. And it actually gets reported in the newspapers at the time. So Joanna, his wife, back in uh, Clahine, finds out about this. And now he is exonerated. But it's pretty humiliating because when the poor law commissioners look into the matter, they accept that he's been exonerated. But he says uh, that he, um, in terms of the affair that there had been a great want of discretion. Whatever that means, no one knows, but you'd have to assume there was something going on. Certainly if you were his wife reading that he'd had a great want of dis- uh, uh, discretion with another woman, you mightn't be too happy. Um, in terms of the allegations of sexual assault, um, again, the poor law commissioners accept that he's not guilty, but they say it gave colour to rumours of scandalous suggestion of improper motives. And I think at this point it's worth looking at this. I guess we have these ideas of how workhouses function, but maybe in light of what we know in 2020 about institutional abuse in Ireland, it wouldn't be that surprising that a guy who went into, started in Clahine and is dealing with people who are referred to as inmates, to the poorest of the poor, they've ended up in there literally because they've nowhere to go they don't have to stay in a workhouse, but if they leave, they're not going to get food. So, you know, I think a lot of our conversations today about things like power imbalance and things like that might explain 
that a guy like that could totally be abusing his position of power. But certainly by 1861, he's emerging as a pretty uh, nasty character. And this obviously, aside from, it's very hard to know what happens to those three women. They're really living at the edge of society. And coming back though to Richard's, I suppose, life, and not to make it all about him, but obviously the big question for him and for his uh, wife now is like, what are they going to do? And it seems initially things are really on the rocks and pretty understandably. She hasn't really seen him a whole lot. They, they meet every couple of months. And then the next thing she does, she, she picks up the local newspaper and it's talking about her husband and she knows her neighbours. Everyone knows that this is her husband who she seems to have loved and stayed true to. And he's away down in Waterford doing a God knows what. But um, we, get, we have actually good evidence though that things start to change between the two of them in late 1861 or maybe early 1862. The date is not clear. But Joanna, his wife, arrives down here in Waterford and he's like, oh my God, what are you doing down here? But anyway, she creates a, 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 a bit of a, a scene in the hotel where he's staying because she says, I want money to, to, support, to support me. You're not paying. And he's like, I don't owe you anything. Anyway, things aren't looking great. But we get the impression that by early 1862, despite everything that's happened in the last year, things are starting to improve. She writes to him in a letter and she says, I'll get, he, he's promising to come up and see her and she says I'll get the potatoes down today I hope the weather will continue fine until they will be finished I hope to have a good garden and oats down before you'll come and then you'll say that I'm very good I'd rather hear that much I'd rather hear that much from you than anything in the world besides so you get the sense that she certainly wants to forgive I don't know forget but certainly forgive and then on we're actually moving up to March is where things start to really reach a, a, a turning point and it's actually on March the 28th, it's today March the 28th, nearly 160 years ago to this day uh, we have a letter that survives from Richard Burke to his wife, it's written up in the workhouse, it's marked Friday 11 o'clock and it says my dearest Joanna I've received uh, your letter of the, of the 26th and to inform you that the little parcel containing the coffee has been sent by me per train this day so he sent her up a bit of coffee and an aside it's actually interesting that coffee was quite a big thing in Ireland in the 19th century there had been a kind of boom in coffee and it was a very popular drink and there would have been coffee houses um, so the idea that he'd actually send her and he's probably sending her certainly a lot better do you remember in, like in the 1980s everyone thought they were posh when they'd have like Nescafe like they actually would have been sending real coffee but that's by the by um, he goes on to say then that at this point Joanna's had a bit of ill health and he says, uh, if you like the coffee, let me know, and I'll send you some every week or fortnight. And then he says, I trust the medicine will agree with you. As I told you, Mr. Harrington, that's a doctor, is of the opinion that by continuing to take this, you'll get rid of the odious complaint under which you are labouring so long. When you take the medicine, put some sugar or lozenges in your mouth and you'll retain it on your stomach. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Um, so he's advising her just, you know, these are all bits and pieces. And then he says, I'm sorry to hear Mr. Mooney is not, nothing better. That's just someone who uh, lives with her. And indeed, it must be very distressing uh, to be always uh, the poor fellow's means. May God grant him grace 
and bear the patience and Christian fortitude. Give them all my kind regards and accept uh, from your uh, and accept the same from your affectionate husband, signed Richard Burke. Not the most loving letter in the world, but from a guy who probably was possibly having uh, affairs a year before. I guess for Joanna, um, things are improving. Now he follows this up with another letter asking how she's getting on and he really seems to be putting the effort in and then suddenly tragically Joanna actually takes a serious turn for the worse her health starts to go rapidly downhill she had been suffering from epilepsy but um, on April the 10th 1862 she gets the severe convulsions and they send for the doctor her sister comes in to see her who'd been living next door and actually she dies really suddenly in the house and at the time in what was a, a, a very very uh, concerning event for people at the time the priest didn't make it on time to give her the last rites and in Ireland in the late 19th century if anything people were actually becoming more and more religious um, it's a complex enough thing after the famine but I guess you've got a lot of different things going on there in terms of survivor's guilt and various different things but uh, she takes it she, the priest doesn't arrive and she dies now, we'll come back to the inquest that we talked about at the start. There's an inquest held in Saranen in a local pub up in Clahim, and that's just because someone has died quite suddenly. It in itself is not that surprising because they have to explain the death. And I suppose by this stage, society is getting to the point where you can't just... The days where you could off someone and no one had asked any questions are long gone. Anyway, there's a, an inquest held in Saranen, and... I found it quite interesting in that the, the detail they go into, they actually remove her stomach and they send it to UCC for examination and a, there's a chemist there that uh, uh, carries out investigations on it. And then when the results of this come back to Clahim, the whole incident changes because it emerges that they are pretty convinced that she's actually been poisoned with strychnine. And the police begin an investigation in Clahim but Richard, not being the cleverest, or certainly not as clever as he thinks he is, has actually written a lot of letters to Joanna. They find those letters in Clahine, and then suddenly they turn up in Waterford going, we need you to answer a few questions. Um, on top of this, the doctor in Clahine had started to ask around about Joanna, and go, like, what happened to this woman? I didn't give her medicine. And there was, a, a, I think, a, a, a figure in Irish society at the time called a fairy doctor. And sometimes people would be kind of, wary about going to doctors would go to what was a fairy doctor and a fairy doctor would give you portions if people are familiar with the story of uh, Bridget Cleary the woman who's burned in South Tipperary a fairy doctor plays a, a strong role in that but most fairy doctors would just give local kind of portions that they'd make up anyway the local fairy doctor in Clahine says he didn't give Rantham the doctor in Clahine knows that he didn't give Rantham and suddenly everyone starts to look at this medicine that Richard Burke has said that he sent her up an investigation starts in Waterford and uh, the doctor that he mentioned, Dr. Harrington, who worked in the workhouse, said, I didn't, give him a, I didn't give Richard Burke anything and I certainly didn't give him any advice. And then it goes to court and they produce the letter and they produce the letter telling where Richard Burke tells his wife, and I'll just read it again, he says, when you're taking the medicine, put some sugar or a lozenge in your mouth and you'll retain it in your stomach. Strychnine has a really bitter taste and what he was doing was telling her to take sugar with it to mask the taste. Now this guy is not a criminal mastermind because 
if he'd just taken the time to go up to Clohean himself, he could have done this. But uh, <laughs> the case quickly essentially unravels, as I say, the, the doctor uh, from Waterford gets up in the court. He says, I didn't tell you anything. Burke is like caught flat-footed. And in what's a moment, this is a bleak story. I should have probably told this one first and maybe talked about going to a dentist for cocaine second. But anyway, <laughs> uh, there is a bit of poetic justice, though, in it because the trial has presented all this evidence. But what is essentially the coup de grace against Richard Burke? There's an old destitute woman who who's been up in the workhouse for years and years. She's nowhere to go. One of those people that he presumably looked down on judging on the way he treated the women we heard about earlier. And this woman is called, her name is Margaret Bowen, but she'd been in the workhouse so long that she'd been given this position of authority where she was allowed help out in the um, dispensary and she did, she'd been given responsibilities. But she was able to testify that she remembered she had seen Richard Burke go into the dispensary and he'd gone and taken something out of it. And she said that she was, uh, she couldn't read so she couldn't say what it was, but the, court, the, the, the prosecution were able to make a huge case that before he sent this letter, that he had gone to uh, the dispensary or the apothecary's office in the workhouse where there was strychnine. Now it went to court, there was this absolutely sensational trial. I should say, poor old Joanna is like buried up in Clahim by this stage. She's not going to get any uh, vengeance, but, or, or vengeance, I suppose. But anyway, he's found guilty and actually the jury bizarrely asked for clemency because he's because of his good character but uh it's kind of an odd thing given everything they'd heard about the guy the judge saw different sentenced him to death burke himself has collapsed uh, this is he's taken up to carmel jail and up in carmel jail uh he had to sit in a cell while they spent days trying to get they hadn't hanged anyone in carmel for since 1849 so it says 13 years so they had to get this metal contraption working again. And it took them a couple of days. So he had to listen to the sounds of lads working away. And like, you know, you can imagine two lads working with, you know, sledgehammers. And then maybe a cheer goes up and they finally get it working. But this is for him. And then actually the hangman arrives. And the ha uh, being a hangman in the 19th century in Ireland was a tricky business. You didn't want anyone to ever know who you were. Because obviously secret societies... You could very easily get uh, get killed. So when the hangman, when the train carrying the hangman arrives, a uh, blacked out carriage pulls up beside it. The hangman is put into it, and no one actually knows who executed Richard Burke. The best part about it is, in terms of the best, again, the best part about it. But in terms of this story, we can only assume that Richard Burke killed his wife Joanna because she was asking for money and she wanted him to support. And there's no real motive ever given. Best, but in terms of a further chapter in the poetic justice in the story, a couple of weeks after after he after Joanna died actually, uh, and before he was executed, uh, it emerged that a, or a relative of Joanna's had died uh, in Australia and left her seven thousand pounds, and he, as her husband, would have actually been entitled to that had he. So I, you know, lads out there looking at this, <laughs> there's, there's a moral in that story for you, but. Um, yeah, I, I guess it was just a, a, it, it's an unusual story. It's actually one that's ne ne never really reported on at the time. Um, I'm conscious I'm about to finish up, and I finished up on a very bleak story. So there is just one other thing that I did allude to at the start that I just want to finish up on. This is about vets. 
in Waterford. And in 1890, they had that article where the local dentist would give you cocaine uh, to do your uh, teeth. Well, if you're a, a heifer uh, around this time, you could actually have a, uh, 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 a similar uh, form of treatment. Now, in, the 18, in 1890, there was a mysterious illness among animals. And um, if I can find this now... Yes, here we are. Uh, there's a mysterious illness uh, in cattle at the time that they kind of think is similar to smallpox. But there's an article in the one of the local Waterford papers, and it's advising farmers, you know, what you should do. So it says, as to the bowels, in the early stage of the, the disorder, are some some are some are constipated. A gentle laxative such as sulphur or linseed oil may be advantageous, and for the subsequent diarrhoea, the best remedy is chalk and opium. So uh, you might have seen strange things if you were walking around the countryside and you'd seen uh, cattle after getting a dose of opium to get them over diarrhoea. uh, I want to thank everyone in Catty Barry's for what was a really lovely evening. Next week, I'll be back with the history of trad music. Until then, Sloan. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.